Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. The officers had their minds made up that she had just, you know, disappeared. She was probably looking for drugs or hanging out with someone at someone's house and she didn't want to be found. You know, the same old story. She's an addict. She's just somewhere laying low. I was 100% worried. Like, at this point, I felt that the rumors the girls were hearing were more truthful than what the officers were saying. Like, they were just really chill about it. They didn't really care. They weren't too worried about it. They had better things to do. They told the family that it was typical addict behavior for her to go missing. Welcome to the first degree of the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. We're twinsying right now. We're both middle parting, black sweatshirt. It's our Steve Jobs look of true crime podcasting. And we have like a founding father hairstyle, like low pony. Yeah, I love it. I feel like you have only recently adopted this middle part low pony, haven't you? Yes, I copied you and Kim Kardashian. (laughs) Thank you. Let me know so if you flattered. think it's working. I'm not sure. I think it, I I love it. I think it looks good on everybody. My rule is middle part for when my hair is back, side part for when my hair is down. Okay. Oh, I like that. You know, it's a little bit of everything. You got to have it all. Before we jump into the day, I just want to remind everybody that if you can't get enough of your first degree content, we are on Patreon. So join our Patreon for a new episode every single day, plus video content for killing time. So if you like us, I think it's a good place to be. Yeah, I mean, our Killing Time episodes are fully videoed, and those are the funny ones. We're ridiculous. we've got 50 episodes plus, more than 50 now, but of other cases that we've covered. So I would jump in if you're looking for more content, especially if you've just caught up after finding us and binging. I mean, what better thing to spend 5 to $10 a month on? That's right. So join us over there. And uh, do you want to know what the day is today? Because it's a good one. I'm on the edge of my seat. So today is Gryffindor Pride Day. Wow. And as a Gryffindor myself, I'm so happy that I caught this day for myself. It is weird that it landed on today because we only it could only be one day a week. I mean, we could have missed it completely, but could have missed it completely. I actually that's kind of sad. Jared and I are doing a deep clean right now and I just threw out a Gryffindor Halloween costume that I never wore. I bought it but I never wore it, but I'm like I don't have room for this. So that's kind of mm, sad. It had to go. It had to go. It's also International Day of the Seal. Love a seal. All of them. And National Bavarian Crepe Day. Yum. I haven't had a Bavarian crepe before, but I love a crepe. I just love all the things that, um, you know, that are packed with sugar and carbs. I mean, what's better, really? What's better? All right. Well, that's enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Sometimes life is hard, incredibly hard. 
taking care of ourselves, paying the bills, cooking meals, going to work, cleaning, paying taxes, nurturing friendships, staying active, self-care. It's all so difficult, seemingly impossible. And just add parenting on top of that. Parenting is its own challenge and just existing can feel overwhelming. Knowing that day in and day out, the grind will never ever stop. And so we turn to things that make things feel easier. And, you know, simpler is better, right? Easier is better. Well, it feels that way, at least for a little while. And we turn to vices. We work out too much. We play too many video games. We eat chocolate. We crack open a beer. We go to football games. We procrastinate. We sip on margaritas at our favorite Mexican place. We light up a cigarette on the way home from the office. When everything feels daunting, taking a break from good decisions can be such a relief. Being perfect is just too much, but we'll be fine if we have these harmless vices. A little hangover never really hurt anybody, and the smoke smell will clear out eventually. But what about when our vices become bigger vices? When the one thing that was supposed to make life easier ends up making life much, much harder? And how do we combat addiction to alcohol, to cigarettes, to painkillers, to heroin? What do we do when the one thing that makes everything just a little better in reality, it makes everything so, so much worse. Today's case begins on July 18th of 2016. Drake's song One Dance tops the charts for the eighth week in a row, and Justin Timberlake's Can't Stop the Feeling sits at number two. In movies, The Secret Life of Pets dominated the box office, while the long-awaited sequel, Finding Dory, follows closely behind. And on July 6th, the mobile phone game Pokemon Go is released, and I think that that was really simpler times. Like going to parks, seeing everybody catch the Pokemon Go, like uh, to go back to those times would be nice, you know? I was honestly in awe of just the pop culture revolution that was that. Like I really thought it was like a global, brilliantly executed (laughs) phenomenon. And I have a fun fact. I was out to dinner last night at a, it was an outdoor mall, the Irvine Spectrum in Orange County. People were playing Pokemon Go. There was a group of like 50 people playing it. It's coming back. So it's still happening. They would put the rare Pokemons like in fun places to be seen from a marketing standpoint. Brilliant. But I digress. I think that they put it in like the fountain at the spectrum. So everybody was there catching them. It was very nice. It made me feel nostalgic. So smart. So anyways, on July 15th of the same year, this show Stranger Things premieres its first season. I'm sure we can all go back to that as well. And, you know, everybody remembered how Winona Ryder is a freaking badass. The setting for today's case is Gallipolis, Ohio, and it's a small town located on Ohio's southeastern border. It's just a couple miles west of West Virginia, and it's a pretty forested area right off of the Ohio River. And in 1790, a group of French aristocrats and merchants settled here, and they left France to escape the violence of the French Revolution. And the name Gallipolis is actually Latin for City of the French. And today, the population is about 3,000 people. And the seat is Galea County. And they have a city park, a train museum, and several taverns. And if you didn't know any better, you might think Gallipolis is a quintessential small town. You know the vibes. Everyone knows everyone. And the most exciting spot is the grocery store. And the kids are bored out of their minds. But Gallipolis have some surprising secrets as well. So, for example, Gallipolis' crime rate is shockingly high. Some reports indicate that 97% of U.S. cities are safer than Gallipolis. And the rate of drug abuse and overdose deaths is also through the roof. But that's kind of common for really any city in Ohio, which is really, really sad. According to substance abuse experts at Ohio State University, Ohio is considered a ground zero for the opioid epidemic. And if you don't know, opioids are narcotics often prescribed for pain. Opioids include codeine, fentanyl, hydrocodone, oxycodone, oxymorphone, and morphine. Heroin is also an opioid, just a synthetic one. Right. And unlike other opioids, doctors don't prescribe heroin because it's so addictive and deadly that it's illegal in the U.S. You all know this. And it's also illegal in almost every other country in the world. But in Ohio, it's not that hard to get your hands on illegal opioids, including heroin. Experts estimate that over 700,000 Ohio residents abuse drugs. And every year, thousands of Ohio citizens die from unintentional drug overdoses. In 2017, the same year the White House declared a nationwide opioid epidemic, 
over 4,800 people died from drug overdoses in Ohio alone. And that record-breaking number was about twice the national average. But in 2020, Ohio broke the record again when over 5,000 people died from drug overdoses. So you may be wondering, what is going on in Ohio? How in the world did a seemingly innocent Midwestern farming state become known for rampant drug addiction? The answer is surprisingly simple. Highways. Ohio has a lot of huge, highly trafficked interstate highways. We're talking the I-70, I-71, I-75, I-80, and more. In total, Ohio has over 1,500 miles of interstate highways. And since the state is smack dab in between highly populated cities like Chicago and New York City, criminal organizations constantly move drugs through Ohio. And naturally, some of those drugs never make it out of Ohio. Drugs also get into Ohio by boat from Lake Erie and by plane and by train. As a transportation hub, Ohio is a prime location for drug trafficking and selling. Right. And Gallup Police, Ohio, is an especially vulnerable position because it's less than a 10-minute drive away from West Virginia. And West Virginia has an even worse drug problem than Ohio. In fact, West Virginia has the worst drug problem in the entire United States. They have the highest rate of substance abuse and the highest rate of overdose deaths. In West Virginia, almost 6% of the population has an illicit drug use disorder. And West Virginia has relatively few substance abuse treatment centers. In West Virginia, many drug users can't get the help they need, even if they wanted to get it. Our first degree for today's case is named Jenna. And for several reasons beyond being born and raised there, Jenna knows all about this area's crime and drug problem. And one of those reasons is that her husband used to be a police officer there. It is terrible here. The drug epidemic is taking over our small town and the surrounding counties. Our county, compared to the rest of the counties in Ohio, is probably one of like the top five in like overdoses. When my husband was working as a police officer, I know he would sometimes have like 15 to 20 overdose calls a day. And Jenna saw the impact of drugs on Gallipolis firsthand because she was a corrections officer at a women's incarceration facility. In our town, we have, or we did have, it shut down, a work release center, and that's where I worked. So it was originally like they would send low-level offenders and nonviolent offenders to this place so that if they had a job, they could leave during the day and go work their job and then go back to jail at night. I actually started in like 2013. I was super young and I didn't take it seriously. Like, oh, cool, there's a job opening. I'm going to apply for it, see what happens. And then I just wound up working there. Where Jenna worked wasn't an intense maximum security prison that you might be thinking. In fact, it was the exact opposite. It was super low key. It kind of felt like a halfway house. It was relaxed and Jenna felt camaraderie with the women who were kind of in the program there. It didn't feel like a jail. I mean, I'm sure it felt like a jail to the girls sometimes, but it was more of like a rehab center. They had freedoms. Like, they were able to have their own clothes. They could have snacks brought in by their families and money. And, I mean, it was really relaxed. It was more of just hanging out for me with them all day. I didn't feel like I was their boss. I felt like more of a friend or a therapist, to be honest because I heard everyone's life story. It kind of turned into a dumping ground for female inmates because there was nowhere else to put them. So the several like surrounding counties would send us females because they didn't have any room for them. And so that's how I met her. So the her Jenna is referring to is a woman named Jessica Berry. And she'd been in Jenna's work release center a few times. And Jenna had grown to know her and like her a lot. Jessica was an average person, like you or me. She was 32 years old. She was an Ohio State Buckeyes fan. And she loved shopping at Target because who doesn't? There doesn't Mm. need to be any other stores. No. Jessica was like anybody. And she was a sister. She was a mom. And she was a friend. But Jessica also happened to struggle with drug addiction, like many others in Ohio and all over the United States. I remember Jessica, she had a drug problem, and that's how I initially met her. For the record, when you think about Jessica and when you met Jessica, 
She didn't seem like a criminal criminal. Jessica was an addict. She didn't need incarceration. What she needed was help. I mean, it's not like she had a huge quantity of drugs on her. It was just whatever to get through the day. And she just happened to be stopped. I always felt really bad that she was in jail. I felt like she didn't deserve to be there. I know there was a few times that she left to get to a mental health center. And I always felt that if she got the help she needed, she could have overcame her addiction, but she was just never able to get that help. But she was always super respectful. Like she never caused any issues. She always got along with all the other girls. She was super bubbly and she literally always had a smile on her face. She was always happy, even when she was in jail. So it was just like short sentences that I would have her. I think I had her maybe two or three times over the course of the few years I worked there. She just looked like a normal person. You would have never known. So that's the one thing that we need to make clear whenever people talk about these cases that involve drug addiction is that the rate of the population who are experiencing this is so high now that literally everybody knows someone, whether it's someone in their family. Yeah. A friend's close family member, you know, everybody's sort of impacted by this. So you don't know who's struggling with it. Yeah. And it's like, I think when you kind of grow up, everything is so dramatized where you have this idea of what a drug addict looks like. And now it's like you said, it just could be anybody, anyone. There's no face of it anymore. Yeah. There's no economic barriers. There's no professional limitations. Doctors abuse drugs. Lawyers abuse drugs. Politicians abuse drugs. And so do regular people. So everyone can kind of connect with this in some way. So Jessica Lorraine Berry was born in Gallipolis, Ohio on September 20th of 1983 to her father, Daniel, and her mother, Tammy. She had two sisters and a brother. In 2002, Jessica graduated from River Valley High School, and after that, she went to a nearby Ohio college called University of Rio Grande. Right. And Jessica really looked like she had her life put together. And as our first degree Jenna mentioned, Jessica was bubbly and fun. She was everyone's biggest fan. And she was known for treating her friends like they were her family. And Jessica absolutely adored her family and especially loved her three children. And Jessica really wanted to shake her drug problem so she could be a better mom. But as you can imagine, a drug problem is really hard to shake, especially without the proper resources. She had three kids. I think she was with them a lot of the time. I think her mom might have helped take care of the kids. Whenever we have inmates that come to jail, we do these intake forms, like mental health forms, to try to get a feel for where they're at and if they need any counseling or if they're at risk and if they need to go somewhere else. We got her the medications that she needed. We would send her to the local like mental health center to get her meds that she needed and I don't want to say that the meds that they gave her like helped her it couldn't like put her in a daze like she's just kind of you know cloudy a lot like I don't think it really helped her just she needed better help than what the jail could provide and the local services could provide I think she wanted to get better for her kids because she talked about her kids all the time. One day in the summer of 2016, Jessica just went missing. Our first degree Jenna had seen Jessica only a few days beforehand, but Jessica had just vanished in a thin air. The last time, I think it was only maybe a couple weeks at the most, a month. And then after I released her, I had my days off. And then when I came back to work from my day's office, whenever I found out she had been missing, like I had literally just released her from jail. And then I feel like it was maybe a week later, if that, that she went missing. The last person to see Jessica was her mother, Tammy. On the evening of July 18th of 2016, Tammy saw Jessica get into a reddish car. And this event didn't really strike Tammy as odd. After all, Jessica was an adult and she was with a friend. She was in her late 20s or early 30s, around the same age as Jessica. And there was no reason for Jessica's mom to really sound the alarm, except for Jessica never came back. And when our first grade Jenna heard that Jessica was missing, she started asking around at her work release facility. Had anybody heard from Jessica recently? Did they know where she was? Gallipolis was such a tight-knit community, so surely somebody had to know something, right? 
we have to do like a debriefing whenever we come in for our shift. And the people that were working the midnight shift actually told me. And whenever I went in to see my girls for the day and give them their morning meds and breakfast and all that, they, of course, all knew. I mean, it wasn't like a typical jail. It was kind of just, we joke around here and we called it the Gallia County Hilton. <laughs> so we all were kind of friends and we heard all the rumors, all the inmates, they were able to use the phones pretty much whenever. So they were hearing stuff through their connections to some of the people that Jessica ran around with. So they knew and they were hearing rumors and they were telling me everything they were hearing. I was hearing all the rumors from the officers and all the rumors from the circle of people that Jessica knew. And this is when Jenna, our first degree, began to notice two very different stories were circulating about Jessica's disappearance and what may have happened to her. So here's the first one. It's what Jenna's fellow corrections officers thought happened to Jessica. The officers had their minds made up that she had just, you know, disappeared. She was probably looking for drugs or hanging out with someone at someone's house and she didn't want to be found. You know, the same old story. She's an addict. She's just somewhere laying low. Like, they were just really chill about it. They didn't really care. They weren't too worried about it. They had better things to do. But here's the thing. Through the proverbial grapevine, the female inmates had heard something completely different. They told Jenna that they'd heard that Jessica had met up with another woman to go to some guy's house to find drugs. And that's when things went terribly wrong. And that's the last they heard about Jess. I was 100% worried. Like, at this point, I felt that the rumors the girls were hearing were more truthful than what the officers were saying. I was really worried for Jessica, especially since now she was on the run because she was scared. I was definitely worried for her. All the same group of girls have been together for months. Sometimes, I think some of them have been there for, like, almost a year. So we all knew each other really well, and we were close, and we talked, and they were worried. They were all upset, and seeing them so upset made me upset, too. Like, I'm very empathetic. Like, I feel bad for these girls because they're worried about their friend. You heard Jenna. So she believed the stories that she was hearing from the other female inmates, and she was worried sick that something terrible had actually happened. Then, six days later, on July 24th, Jessica's family reported her missing, which made sense. Jessica called her mom or sisters every day, and it wasn't like Jessica to go radio silent like this. But just like the corrections officers who worked with our first degree, Jenna, the police didn't seem to take Jessica's missing persons case particularly seriously, and they didn't do any investigating. I mean, very, very little. Instead, the detectives just kind of chalked it up to Jessica's drug addiction. They figured she's gone off somewhere to get high, and that was that. And the authorities even told the news outlets that Jessica had a drug problem. And this is really, really awful and stupid if you're trying to drum up tips and find leads to find out where Jessica is. When the news released Jessica's missing persons description, the reporters included that she was a known drug addict. So this is essentially telling the general public, you know, hey, this woman is missing, but she is a drug addict, so don't really be too concerned about it. And at this time, our first degree Jenna's husband was still a police officer. So he knew exactly how the locals' offices felt about Jessica's case. Jenna, our first degree, was watching the inaction of law enforcement in Jessica's case, and she was horrified. I had just seen this girl, had just, you know, spent eight hours a day with this girl, talking to her every day. And for her to go missing, it was really shocking. And then I felt really bad for her kids. And what was even more shocking was that, you know, these people that I work with every day and these officers that I talk to every day weren't taking it seriously at all. And there was no news coverage. Like, nobody was trying to help this girl. Her family was begging on social media for people to share her pictures and stuff like that. And it was just, it was sad that nobody was helping. I heard from several people that worked there, that it was just one less person to deal with. A few days after Jessica was reported missing, there was a break in her case. 
Not because the local police had done any investigating, because they hadn't, but because a civilian called 911. And the caller on the line told the operator that they'd found human remains in their yard. Not just that, they found dismembered human remains. And experts later confirmed that this was what was left of 32-year-old Jessica Lorraine Berry's body. The residents of the West Virginia neighborhood where Jessica's remains were discovered were horrified by this news. They thought that their little country community was practically crime-free. One woman told WOW KTV 13 News, It's usually a quiet place. There's never been trouble since I've been here. It's kind of shocking and scary. And another woman said, It's kind of bad to be scared in your own home. I mean, it's never like this. So this is a big scare for us. People in the area who knew Jessica felt the same way. And a woman told the Galea County news station, it's like a story that you would read, not one that you'd actually live and know this girl walked these streets and is from here. And the Galea County prosecuting attorney said, this type of conduct is read about in books or portrayed in movies, but it does not happen in Galea County, or so we thought. So of course, our first degree, Jenna, was floored. I found out in passing from either one of the other corrections officers or the other police officers walking around. And it was really devastating. I know all the girls, I can remember, they were all upset. They were all crying. It was crazy. I didn't know what to feel. Like I was really sad for Jessica, and I was really sad for her kids. But I was really sad for the police department, you know? Like, I was so upset that I worked for these people that didn't even try to help her this is your job and you're not doing it. And I think other than that, the most like surprising thing was the sweet girl that I knew and had talked to you a few days or a week before had wound up in this horrible situation. I couldn't believe that this had been done to the girl that I had just sat next to the week before. What happened to Jessica? Who would do this? Why would anybody want to hurt this bubbly, sweet mother? And how could they possibly justify dismembering her body? And when Jessica was reported missing days ago, why didn't anybody look for her? To answer these questions, you know the drill. We got to go back. On Friday, January 29th, 2016, Investigators found Jessica's remains in a person's yard in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The house was in a rural area 11 miles from Gallipolis. And as the homeowners were explaining to detectives how they found these remains, they shared a crucial detail. So in the exact location where the remains were discovered, they had recently hired a handyman to build their deck. And that handyman was 47-year-old Richard Allen Hurt. As luck would have it, for the sake of this episode, our first degree Jenna also had knowledge of and context for Richard Allen Hurt. She had a couple of loose connections to him and other women at the inmate facility had connections to him too. A girl that I worked with knew the people that was having work done by Richard. He was like building them a deck or something. And she actually found out before it was released that the remains had been found. I guess the homeowner got really suspicious when Richard was trying to complete the job a lot quicker than what he originally said. And he was trying to, like, pour some concrete in an area that didn't need it. It was, like, under the deck. So they went out and found the shallow grave. And it just so happened that Richard drove a car that looked exactly like the one that Jessica was seen last getting into. And this was right before she disappeared forever. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Aloe Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending 
depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Aloe Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Aloe Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to alamoves.com and use code FIRST for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's alomoves.com, code FIRST, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code FIRST. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on the first degree. And when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV. And that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials. And the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash first. Thrivemarket.com slash first. Fuel up fast with Factors restaurant quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. Richard Allen Hurt was born on May 6th of 1969 in Ohio to his father, William, and his mother, Mary. So at some point, Richard joined the U.S. military, and afterwards, he began a career as a contractor, handyman type guy. He could do it all, right? And in 92, Richard began dating his longtime girlfriend, a woman named Donna. So in 1993, Richard had a son named Richard Allen Hurt II, and it's a name you're going to hear again. There's two Richard Allen Hurts, the younger one and the older one. And for the most part, as far as Richard Allen Hunt Sr., that's all we know about Richard's life. Nothing else is available on his childhood, on his teen years. That means it had to be, in some respects, a relatively uneventful time, at least on paper. But you know what is available? His Galea County court record. And let's just say it's a doozy. So we'll give you the highlights. In 1994, Richard's girlfriend Donna filed a domestic violence suit against him. In 2010, a police officer filed another domestic violence charge against Richard, and it's not clear if Donna was really involved that time at all. Next up is the year 2014, and in this one year, he was charged with obstructing official police business, resisting arrest, reckless operation of a motor vehicle, drunk driving, failure to control his vehicle, and a hit and run. So that was a crazy year for Richard, and we're not even going to bore you with his many, many, many traffic violations. Right. And this gets kind of interesting. So Richard's son, Richard Allen Hunt Jr., the second, also struggled and entangled himself with the law. 
So since Richard and his son have the same name, we're going to call Richard's son by his middle name going forward. We're going to call him Alan. And we're going to call Daddy Richard, Richard, just to keep this easy, because I can't say Richard Allen Hunt another 25 times. So as soon as Alan turned 18 years old, things for him seemed to go downhill. So over the course of five years, Alan was charged with failure to control a vehicle, theft, driving under the influence, driving under suspension, driving with tinted windows, which I do. So that one's not that big of a deal, but everything else is terrible. Speeding, fleeing the police, and that's just the beginning. But the people of Police still looked kindly on Richard. Despite his troubles, despite his son's troubles, they really seemed to like him for some reason. According to our first degree Jenna, Richard was a well-respected veteran. People hung out with him. They shared beers with him. And to be fair, it's not like people were tracking down Richard's court records like we did. They probably had no idea that Richard was violent towards his girlfriend, Donna or that he had so many run-ins with the police. And even if his son was having a tough time, who's to say that it was Richard's fault? After all, his son was a fully grown adult. But a few people thought that they knew Richard's true character. In fact, our first-degree Jenna heard some pretty awful stories about Richard. When hearing his name in relation to Jessica's case, she recognized it right away. We live in such a small town. Like, we know everyone's business like it's our own business. (laughs) I actually went to high school with his son. I think his son was like the year below me. So the name was definitely familiar. I kept hearing, oh, he's a great guy. You know, he's he's a veteran. He would have never done anything like this. That's what the police were saying. Like, oh, he was a veteran. So he would have never done that. On paper, Richard Hurt is a great man. He is a veteran. He's never done anything wrong. He's never been in trouble. But the rumor mill in our very small town works hard, and it's kind of widely known that he exploits women that have addictions who get sexual favors, and he's been known to be violent to these women, too. And I've heard rumors that his family is scared of him. He did have a girlfriend at the time, and she was scared of him, too. And here's where things get really crazy and really demonstrate our first degree universe in a way that is kind of perfect. So it turns out Jenna's sister also had a weird experience with Richard. In fact, Richard's niece was the same age as Jenna's sister. So they hung out a couple times at Richard's pool together. And apparently it was uncomfortable. We were talking about it the other day because she was like, you know, I went over there for swimming and stuff, right? And I was like, no, you didn't. (laughs) My youngest sister, she's like 10 years younger than me. So she actually went to his house one time and she didn't know it was his house. She was with one of her little friends. She was in like middle school or something when she went there. But I guess there was a bunch of like little girls over there. They were all in like seventh or eighth grade. They were having a pool party. And I guess Like, she said that he just sat there and stared at them the whole time, like, really creepy. But as far as all women listening know, and men know too, obviously, it's not illegal to be a total fucking creep. It's just not. So just because Richard is creepy, and just because he has this court record, doesn't necessarily mean that Richard had anything to do with Jessica going missing. Except maybe he does. At least that's what many people in Gallipolis suspected. On the evening of July 18th, 2016, Jessica was last seen getting into a car similar to Richard's. And here's what we and some folks in Gallipolis think happened from there. Another woman was in the car with Jessica, and we're going to call her Amy. And Amy was known for hanging out with Richard. Right. And here's what Jenna heard about this whole thing through the grapevine and all the women she knew through this rehabilitation program where she worked. This is also something she kind of learned through firsthand experience because Jen had encountered this person through the same jail program that she became familiar with Jessica through. So in other words, she knew, quote unquote, Amy too. I think they must have made plans to hang out and they were both getting released around the same time and they both ended up at Richard's house. And I think this other girl already had connections with Richard. And I think she's the reason why Jess was there in the first place. And this woman, Amy, apparently is bad news. 
she was very sneaky. She's very, very conniving. She was always plotting her next step. You could see it when you looked at her. Like, she was always up to something. She was trying to, she was always, like, swindling other girls out of their snacks and stuff like that. But she was always, she's the type that you knew you would see her again in a couple months. So Jessica and Amy allegedly went to Richard's house, and that is probably mistake number one. Because even though some people thought of Richard as this beloved veteran and, you know, shared the beers with him and whatever, others thought that he was truly a terrible guy. According to them, allegedly, Richard would often lure women with known drug problems into his home. And then he would use drugs to coerce these vulnerable women into having sex. At one point, Richard may have used this tactic to trap a woman in his garage. Apparently, she escaped, but she never went to the police. And rumor has it that Richard's girlfriend, Donna, knew all about Richard's history of abusing women with drug addictions. But she never went to the police either. I'm not positive if Richard used or not. From what I hear about Richard and how he used women and their addictions to basically please himself, I feel like maybe this girl lured Jessica into going there by saying, hey, you know, if you do X, Y, and Z with him, he might give you some free drugs or whatever. I feel like that's probably along the lines of what happened and how she got to be there. And that's probably why this other girl doesn't really care and probably doesn't want to say anything. I think they did question her, but I don't think she's ever told the whole story or the truth. She's refused to talk to the family when they reached out to her and she won't talk about it anymore. So the girls were telling me that Jess and this other girl had went to Richard Herbst's house and her mother had actually saw her get in Richard's car to go to his house. And the girls were telling me that they kept hearing the same story over and over again that Richard had beat up Jessica. And I guess there was like this really heavy ashtray that he used to like beat her in the head with. So at this point, Amy probably would have fled the scene. While Jessica was maybe allegedly passed out from being beaten badly with this ashtray, and maybe allegedly Richard gave an unconscious Jessica a lethal dose of heroin, and then allegedly maybe possibly Richard then needed to get rid of Jessica's body. And he probably attempted to hide her in the rubble around the deck of the building in West Virginia, but he was caught. But like, there's no other real explanation. Like, he's the one who buried these remains there, right? So we don't know what happened, but something happened. And this whole time, she's missing. Her family has no idea where she is. Right. And during this whole time, her family is obviously out of their minds with worry. And as you know, they did contact the police, and the police said that they followed up on Jessica's family's suggestions. They interviewed Richard, Amy, and another man who was with Richard that day. But according to Jessica's family, the police just didn't do enough. Specifically, they didn't search Richard's house like Jessica's family had asked them to. And this was really upsetting to Jessica's family, especially her sister, Rachel. Right. And Rachel has been super outspoken about this. You can find her on Facebook. We went through every post where she's talking about this. And she said specifically, and this is, we got this all from things she said on her social media accounts. So take it for what it is. It's not been verified by like the legal system, but this is the family's outrage and her expression of that, right? So she said that she'd received a tip from Richard's own sibling. And this sibling said that Richard had probably buried Jessica in concrete somewhere. But according to sister Rachel, the local officers didn't take this information seriously at all. After all, it's just gossip, right? And they still thought, law enforcement at this time, that Jessica was just on her latest, you know, drug binge. And a Galea County police officer told the Gallipolis Daily Tribune, we do take these very seriously and follow up with people she may know. We also hope to give Jessica a little time to hopefully come back on her own as well. 
It wasn't until Jessica's remains were discovered that police rapidly changed their tune. Suddenly, both the Ohio Bureau of Investigation and Ohio Attorney General's office were involved, and Richard was a person of interest. The police searched his home and his cell phone, and according to people close to Jessica, the investigators found incriminating pictures on Richard's phone. Apparently, Richard snapped a few shots of Jessica's remains. And also, he recently Googled how to hide a dead body. Doesn't sound good for him. No. What is wrong with this man? So finally, the police began seriously considering Richard as a suspect, as they should have the second the remains were found. And that's when Richard did the unthinkable. Probably not what you're expecting. He confessed. But not to the crimes you're thinking of. In fact, he confessed to something completely different. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French. And it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten. And I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the First Degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. On Saturday, July 31st of 2016, two days after Jessica's body was found, 47-year-old Richard Allen Hurt was arrested during a routine traffic stop in Mason County, West Virginia. The state of West Virginia charged him with concealing a dead body. And a few days later, the state of Ohio charged Richard with abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence. Richard was held at a West Virginia jail on $100,000 bail. And that's where Richard explained his version of events. Right. So his quote-unquote confession. So what he said is that Jessica did come to his house on July 18th when she went missing. But according to Richard, he didn't lay a finger on Jessica. Not while she was alive, at least. What he said was that a day after Jessica came to his house on July 19th, Jessica overdosed on heroin and died. In Richard's supposed response to having a dead woman in his home, I mean, he didn't call the police, he didn't call a hospital, he didn't call a friend. What he did was way worse. Yeah, what he did was pretty unfathomable. So Richard told detectives that he used a saw to cut Jessica's body into approximately 12 pieces. Then he put Jessica's body into several black trash bags. He hid Jessica's dismembered body in his car for a while until he went to West Virginia to build a deck for his client. And that's when he saw an opportunity. Richard hid the trash bags with Jessica's remains in them where the deck would go. And he planned to pour concrete over the bags so Jessica's body would never be found. And this is the part of the story that Jessica's sister Rachel heard from Richard's sibling. But by random chance, the homeowners found Jessica's remains before Richard could pour the concrete. We can't imagine how frustrating this is for Rachel, who's learning this in real time, trying to get the police to take it seriously, and then no one's listening to her. So this is all if Richard is telling the truth. And that's a big if. Because we have to ask, why was this his reaction to Jessica's death? 
why didn't he take literally any other course of action? It's unfathomable, really. It is terrible. I know every small town is probably like this. It's just insane, the shit that people do here. We've had this problem in Gallia County for a long time, like people overdose and being dumped at the hospital. I feel like that's a normal reaction. Like I get, I understand being scared if your friend is overdosed, but we've had people being dropped off at the hospital and their friends taking off. Like that's a normal reaction. I can't understand that. But cutting up someone is not normal. But I think they just believed him because it was the easiest thing to do because Jess was a known addict. So of course she could overdose. That's a perfect story. Makes sense to me. Case closed. And if you thought it couldn't get worse, the details of Jessica's autopsy are mind-blowing. Our first degree, Jenna, had a really hard time reading it, and we did too. I cried after reading it. Like, I couldn't believe that this had been done to her. I was shocked because I I knew that he had dismembered her, but I didn't realize how far he actually took it. So they had the head, but he, for some reason... He scalped her and then cut her head off. I don't know if he was trying to get rid of DNA, but obviously he didn't think it through because you can still have DNA without hair. They never did recover her uterus, fallopian tubes, and vagina. They were able to recover everything else except for those. Like, did he keep these? Like, where are they? Jessica's body was so mutilated that the state medical examiner couldn't determine a cause of death. And according to Jessica's family, Richard tried to dissolve Jessica's body and lie before putting her in the trash bags. Like, what is he hiding? Yeah. Why do you need to go to this degree if your story is correct? If an innocent woman dies of a drug overdose, wouldn't you want the family to know why would you try so hard to hide this? It's just beyond me. So naturally, given all he'd done, her remains weren't in great shape. So not only was it impossible to find out how Jessica died, it was also impossible to know whether she'd been beaten by an ashtray, like the rumors suggested. I just think the idea that he would take her reproductive organs, like I'm trying to put myself in the mind of a deranged person who needs to dismember somebody. And it's like, I'm not doing shit like that. It's just also like you're trying to claim that you didn't kill this woman, but yet you have it in you to dismember her so horribly and to be taking uh, internal organs out of her body. Like, if you have the capacity to do that, I think it's pretty easy to believe that you have the capacity and you probably did kill this woman. Because it's like, what is the, like, why? A hundred percent. And I wonder if it's just like, there's just not enough evidence. Because I think probably anyone with a common sense would look at this guy and be like, if you can dismember a woman like that, you can kill her. But maybe they just can't prove it, right? So on Monday, February 6th of 2017, Richard pled guilty to gross abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence. Later that month, 47-year-old Richard Allen Hurt was sentenced to four years in prison. You heard that right. Four years, only four years in prison. And during the sentencing hearing, Richard apologized for his actions. And according to Jessica's family who were present at the hearing, the presiding judge thanked Richard for his military service. That has got to be like just the weirdest thing to experience. Thank you for your service, sir. Ew. You mutilated a woman's body and was going to conceal her death to her family and leave them in emotional purgatory for the rest of their lives. And you're like, let me give you a pat on the back, old chap. Ugh. I hate that fucking... Sick. Ugh. So like we are, Jessica's family was also outraged. And they weren't alone. Hundreds of people shared Jessica's story on Facebook, and the hashtag Justice for Jessica briefly trended in the Gallup Police community. And the people who knew Jessica wondered why Richard was allowed to use a supposed overdose as a get-out-of-jail-free card. Imagine Jenna, our first degree, who knew this woman, who knew Richard, who knew all this context. It was shocking and horrible for her to sit by and watch happen. I was shocked initially when they were dressed saying that they were going to charge him with abuse of a corpse and tampering with evidence because that's nothing. And I felt like Richard was solely responsible for Jessica's death. 
no matter what the police were saying, like if it was an overdose, whatever, no, I felt after hearing that he beat her up and stuff like that, I was shocked that this was all he was being charged with. Even the prosecuting attorney publicly criticized Richard's short sentence. The prosecutor said that the punishment was too small for such an enormous crime. And maybe nothing could prove that Richard murdered Jessica, but was the legal system going to allow people to dismember and hide bodies with a mere slap on the wrist? Was that really the precedent that the courts were setting? Right. And the people of this area and Gallipolis didn't want that. So they began petitioning Ohio lawmakers for something called Jessica Berry's Law. And this would increase the punishment for people who abused corpses. Because believe it or not, Richard's case isn't the first time that this happened. On at least three other occasions, someone from Gallipolis had hidden a corpse in a similar fashion. But then they claim the victim died of a drug overdose. And by this point, if they do this kind of thing, the remains are so desecrated that there's no way to contradict their story or prove otherwise. So obviously, like, they need to prosecute this in a more harsh way. But we've looked at the current Ohio laws and the legislation associated with these kind of crimes. And so far, nothing has changed. And to add insult to injury, in April of 2017, a year after Jessica's disappearance, law enforcement officials searched a house in Gallipolis. Inside the house was Richard's son, two other men, $1,000 cash, and a bunch of heroin. Richard's son and the other two men were immediately arrested. And the next month, 23-year-old Richard Allen Hurt II was indicted for possession of heroin, trafficking heroin, and tampering with evidence. Allen was sentenced to seven years in prison. And this is three more years than Richard got for possibly, probably, allegedly, whatever, murdering a woman and hiding her body. Right. And it also plays into one of the primary theories that Richard, while no one really knows if he's a heroin user or not, or was at the time, at least had it at his house, possibly did. His son was trafficking heroin and involved in this. So it adds one more layer of credibility to this idea that women were lured over there, tempted by getting a heroin fix, which is such a disgusting way to exploit someone's addiction disease. So our first degree, Jenna, ended up leaving her career as a corrections officer. And so did her husband. He quit being a police officer because in part, at least, of Jessica's case. So the justice system, as she saw this unfold, really disappointed Jenna. And to her, it seemed like it wasn't actually helping anyone. And her husband, like we said, was also disillusioned with his police service in this area. They both left their careers. That was really the start of it. And I ended up quitting less than a year later. I realized, like, wow, this is really messed up, like all the stuff that was going on. And the help that people weren't getting. And that's kind of why I left. Like, the system's so broken. I don't want to be a part of it. It was just really weighing on me because there was males in this facility, too. So I was around a lot of people that had a lot of issues that weren't being dealt with. I remember seeing someone going through withdrawals so badly that they almost died in our shower room and nobody wanted to help. I remember having to call the crisis hotline like 30 times and nobody would return my calls to help someone. So it was just little things like that that kept happening over and over and over again that it was really weighing on me and I would just bring it home and worry about it. So I knew that I needed to distance myself from it. But once this happened to Jess, it kind of pushed me further, like, wow, these aren't the good guys that I'm working with. Like I always thought, like I thought, you know, the police were the good guys. They're here to help. You know, that was clearly wrong. My husband actually was a police officer and he left for the same reason. Just didn't want to be a part of that anymore. It's heavy. It's very heavy. Especially if you're someone that does care, you bring it home. It's hard not to bring it home and, it kind of just takes up your entire life. Like you'll go home and instead of playing with your kids or doing whatever, you're you're worrying about these people. At least that's how it looks for me and my husband. Today, Richard is a free man. He was released from prison about a year ago. 
But even though he technically did his time, justice obviously does not feel served at all. Jessica's sister, Rachel, continues to warn women in the Gallup Police community to stay away from him. He got released last year, I believe. And I'm pretty sure he still lives somewhere in the county. I know her sister. She, I still see on Facebook every once in a while. She'll make a post trying to get Jessica's story out there. And whenever Richard was released from prison last year, she made a post like, watch out for this guy. Tell your wives and girlfriends and other women to be careful. Stay away from him. Like, they're still really angry and rightfully so. Jenna thinks Jessica could have turned her drug addiction around. She was just so sweet and so kind. And she was always helping the other girls or whenever I talked with her, like, she was just always so nice, so bubbly. Had she gotten the mental health services that she needed and the support system that she needed. And we have like a saying for people like getting out of addiction, you have to change your people, places and things. So she needed to get new friends. She needed to change her environment. And I think that could have helped her overcome her addiction, but her whole friend group was an addiction. So that's hard to get out of. It really is. Now Jenna is left wondering about what could have been. I think the first thing where they went wrong was treating Jessica's case as less than than someone that, you know, didn't have a history of drug addiction or anything less than savory in their eyes. I think had they treated her like they would have any normal person and went on that well check like they should have, that this might be a completely different case and have a different outcome. And like these people are sworn to protect and serve everyone, not who they choose. Jenna thinks that Richard is hiding his true nature behind the veneer of his military career. I think it's the fact that, you know, he's this veteran, so he's automatically held in a high regard by this community and the police department and everybody has always had nice things to say about him besides the people in the drug community. So I think him being a veteran and just him being a quote-unquote good person is what led him to get away with this. I feel like the community as a whole cared, but not the police department. Nobody was really saying anything in the police department. I had a family member, actually, my brother. He was in active addiction at this time, and I was like, oh my gosh, this could happen to my brother. Something could happen to him, and they wouldn't care, obviously, because he's an addict, because they don't care about addicts in this town. This could happen to someone else. There are so many what-ifs in this case. You could turn yourself in circles for eternity thinking about them. Like, what if Jessica had never been exposed to drugs? What if she had access to the rehabilitation she needed and deserved? What if she had never gotten into Richard's car? But ultimately, those what-ifs don't really matter. In fact, here's the most important what-if of all. What if the police had investigated Jessica's disappearance, like really investigated it, taking it seriously from the very beginning. What if they had responded properly to the facts of the case, that a woman, not a drug addict, was missing? What if they had listened to her family, put boots on the ground, took action? What kind of evidence that could they have uncovered if they had searched right away? And we know that there are others like Jessica, whose cases will never be solved for this very same reason. So, Just like our first degree Jenna said, if this injustice could happen to Jessica, it can happen to anyone. So look out for your friends, your family, because the people who are sworn to protect them, well, what if they don't? Here 
huge thank you to Jenna for being our first degree for this episode. If you're listening and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Please join our Patreon. We have lots of fun bonus content for you over there and come back tomorrow for a brand new episode of Killing Time right in your feed. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are WOW, KTV, WSAZ, Willis Funeral Home, Facebook, Gallipolese, Daily Tribune, Gallipolese, Municipal Court Records, Herald Dispatch, WCHS-TV, Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction, Highland County Press, CDC, Ohio State University, U.S. Department of Justice, Ohio Department of Health, The Washington Post, the National Library of Medicine. And as always, our first read guest is always our largest source. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.